welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I am so delighted to be back today. And we're going to have a really cool conversation about empaths and intuition, and maybe even talking a little bit about how flowers can give us messages and hints about what we need to know from the universe. So today, my guest is Susan Jane. And Susan has spent over 30 years encouraging people to connect develop and trust their intuition to enable them to make confident decisions in their lives. But her life wasn't that simple. It changed dramatically when her 20-year emotionally abusive marriage ended. Susan had to reconnect and discover who she really was and what she wanted to do with her life. But it's hard to make decisions when for most of your life, other people have made them for you. There was only one choice to be made. Susan had to trust who she was deep down and confidently follow the intuitive intuitive decisions she was receiving. It wasn't easy at first, but it got clearer with practice. Susan's strength lies within as she relies strongly on her intuition to guide her towards her goals in life. She has learned to trust this power and teach others to do the same using the tools she has developed over her lifetime. The most enjoyable tool for intuitive guidance comes through intuitive flower readings. In flowers, you will actually see the intuitive messages from your soul. The petals of attraction, your guides along the way, will even discover how to motivate yourself to achieve your goal. A beautiful way to learn to trust your intuition and make confident life decisions. Enjoy your life's journey by trusting in the guidance of your intuitive self. Welcome, Susan. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. And I loved how you read that. I sound really, really good, don't I? (laughs) You do. And it also is like, and it sounds like you really have an interesting story to share with us. And so what I always love to do is I love to start at the very beginning and talking about what your experience was like as a sensitive child, as an intuitive person. Like, what was it like? Did you identify as highly sensitive and and, and empathic? Um, What kind of experience did you have as a kid? Did you have people telling you that you were too sensitive, that you were too, you know, you were making things up? Like, what was your experience like? Well, growing up, I was one of eight children. So, yeah, Jennifer's going, wow. Yes, I just made a face and went, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Eight children is a um, lot of people. Yeah. So so being one of eight, I can't say I identified with anything. I identified as one of eight. And so you went along doing what you did in in how you did it. So you, you, you survived the way you survived. I didn't feel that I was any different to anyone else. But I wasn't aware that I could be any different to anyone else. I know I was a lot quieter than my, say, some of my siblings, but I did, and I did keep to myself. Um, I enjoyed having my time, my space, 
as much as I enjoyed being with the family and, and interacting with the family, I enjoyed having my time and my space. And I guess when I look back, I can look back and say, oh, you were like this and you were like that. But when I was going through it, I didn't realise, you know, right. I was not aware of being an empath. I wasn't aware that I could feel my brothers and sisters' emotions. I wasn't aware that I could pick, pick up on those feelings. That was just what you did. Right, there was, right. It's not until later on when you look back that you realise it. Yes. Well, and I'm curious, where were you in the birth order with in a family of eight? Uh, there was four of us born in England. I was the last born in England. Mum was six months pregnant when she came to Australia, and then she had another four. So of the eight, I was. So you were you were a middle. You were really like smack dab in the middle. So yeah. which I mean, middle child seems like there's a whole other kind of pieces about what it's like to be sort of sandwiched between the older and the younger ones. And like, really, and and I think just that idea of you already came in with a whole bunch of siblings, and then a whole bunch of other siblings came in after you, it makes total sense that you were just kind of like going along to get along. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the funny thing is, later on in uh, in our lives, um, my younger sister, the next one down, she would often talk about a uh, middle child and this was the issue and she was having problems here. I never ever saw it as being a problem or an issue. I never I never felt that I was alienated in any way or um not part of the family in any way. I never felt different. I did understand that with eight kids there was you only had a little bit of time of mum's time. Yeah. I was very aware that my oldest sister was not, I don't know whether you would say mum's favourite, but they seemed to interact a lot better. And so it was, there was a lot of competition in the family and I wasn't really prepared to take on that competition. So I found my own space and my own reality wherever I was. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I probably was. If I, if you ask my sisters and brothers, yeah, I was probably the weird one. Out of all the family, all of my seven brothers and sisters still live live in and around Melbourne, where the mum and dad are. Or mum only passed just recently. I'm the only one. When I was 21, I left and moved two states away. Wow. So that was probably the biggest difference between me and my family. And like I said, I can look back now, but. Obviously, there was a reason I needed to get away from the family because I didn't feel like I could be me while I was amongst it. Yes. Well, and you were saying like you, your experience being in your family, it was almost like it was so immersive that there wasn't even an opportunity to sort of be like, what's, who am I? What am I? What's mine? What's not mine? Like you were just kind of part of this. I don't know. It's almost like it seems like like a herd or a, co- you know, like a colony where yes. it just there was this all this momentum within the family. I also I love how you were talking about sort of being a middle child. You didn't have some of that middle child angst. You know, I always think of like, I don't know if you ever watched the Brady Bunch and like Jan Brady and the whole Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That sort of, you know, and it sounds like your younger sister had more of that Marsha, Marsha, Marsha kind of thing going on. But for you, you had that perspective. Do you think that you had almost like the perspective of sort of an old soul it, around your family, like you kind of got it? I, I do. Um, but you, I feel that you're probably talking me up a little bit more than what 
um, what really happened. Because, yes, I did feel like I was a little bit different or a little bit um, old soul-like, but my way of surviving or my way of living in that when I was in those, those teens and those younger years was to go with the herd mentality. It was easier to flow than to create any drama. Um, so, yes, so where you're saying that maybe that is an old soul having that understanding that that's a better way to get through this situation or whether it's just somebody who's going, I don't want to push any buttons. I'm quite happy to just go with the flow. Right, right, right. Well, so, and as, yeah. a, as an empath, there's that way in which you can feel the flow and and sort of calibrate to it as opposed to constantly pushing up against it and trying to work away from it. So yeah. let's talk about the 20 year marriage. Let's talk about, you know, so, or I, well, and I guess I might be jumping ahead. So if I am stop me and let's, you know, we'll back up, but did you, so actually I'll ask you this. Did you go from leaving your family and moving three States away to being married or was there an in-between of sort of finding yourself or like having some discoveries or anything like what happened once you left your family? I, I had a few discoveries before before I left my family and I can, mm -hmm. I'll talk about those a bit later. Yeah. But I had a few discoveries then and I wasn't aware that they were discoveries, mind you. Again, not being aware until you've looked back. Yes. Yeah, so I know I got to um, around the twenty-year mark, and I went. I I want to travel around Australia. I want to. I want to see the world, and I, I just really had this strong urge. The only way I can find me is to be away from that because the family. And I don't get me wrong. I love my family, but they put you into boxes. They put yes. you into their their little packages because it's easy for them. And I get that. I've done the same to them. But I needed to get away from that so I could find myself. And I and I, I was acutely aware of that. So I left. Um, I did a, a bit of a holiday with a friend and then she went back to Melbourne and I stayed up in Queensland and started working and started getting money in and, and finding myself. Um, I did meet my husband early earlier in that trip. Um, probably way too early. I had obviously not found myself properly. I've only found parts of myself. Um, and yes, I did marry. I, I guess if I, if I look back on it, I basically I married my father. Mm -hmm. Basically, yeah. I married, and I was again not aware of that until a long time ahead. Yes, so often we're not, and yet it's so fascinating how we will just repeat the patterns until we learn from them. I also want to just hold up a piece where you were talking about you had to, in order to find yourself, you had to get away. And I think that that's so true with empathic overwhelm is sometimes the only way we actually can start to recognize what's ours, what's not ours, who are we actually, as opposed to who are, who are we being influenced to be. Uh, only comes from silence, only comes from getting away from the static and away from the noise and being able to actually be like, oh, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is this is what matters to me. I know for myself, it took me years of being sort of out of my mother's scope of influence before I really started recognizing how much of the stuff, how much of things that I thought were mine were actually hers. And so I you know, I really do think that there's times where the only way we really get to find out who we are is by taking space from the, the louder noise. 
Yeah. And yeah. I like how you called it the scope of it. I, I probably called it um the, sort of the influence, the expectation. So yeah. we had an ex- the family have an expectation of you. Um and they may not even have that expectation. It might be I feel that they've got an expectation. And so we start to live our lives around the expectation of others, which may not or perceived expectation. Right, right, right. Well, and I mean, the combination of the spoken and sometimes unspoken and then also the projected or imagined expectations, you've got this whole cluster of things. And then on top of it, there's the repeating the same patterns or the same lessons until we learn them. So like you meet a man, he's just like your father. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, I met him early on and, uh, yeah, it, it, to be honest, when, when you're going through that stage, I'd left my family a couple of States away to meet up with somebody who gave you that feeling of, uh, security or knowing, you know, and, and, like you, you you live in these these constants that you might be it might be a quagmire of, of stuff and nonsense, but you know that stuff and nonsense. And when you start looking at what's over the other side of the fence, you don't know, you can't see it. So you, you tend to stay in that quagmire. And yeah. I think meeting him and having that understanding of what was going on there, it gave me some sort of sense of a crazy sense. I don't know how I got there, but of security. Yeah. Well, and and I'm also imagining, um, you know, if this is your first time away from this chaotic, like, I mean, you were in a family, I'm assuming that it was just your parents and your siblings. There's 10 of yeah. you there. If yeah. you had grandparents, I mean, it could have been, you know, but like you've got 10, like you've got this nuclear family of 10 I can even imagine like just what it must have been like to meet this man who, I mean, we don't know, we, we're not immediately going to be like, oh my God, you're my father. Like, like we don't necessarily recognize that at all, but I'm also imagining that unless he happened to already have like nine or he had eight, he had eight children, uh, the amount of like space in that relationship, like the fact that you got to be at uh, in the beginning, he was probably like you both could create or make each other the priority. That yes. was you got attention in a way that you probably were not getting it before. So, Absolutely. yeah. And I don't know. I'm sort of imagining this. But a lot of times when you have somebody who's really um, controlling and, you know, somebody who's kind of abusive and controlling before they, you know, sort of turn to the dark side, they are sometimes the most charming people when it comes to courtship that you're ever going to experience. Like they know how to love bomb and really bring you in. So I'm sort of imagining that the beginning, I mean, it's not like it was awful at the start. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely not. And and I think that's why you question yourself, because it seems to go, it seems to turn in such a slow and obnoxious sort of a way that you really aren't aware of what's going on. When, you know, once once the, the lust and the excitement and everything else starts to wear down and the reality starts to hit home, that's when things start to come on. And, and they talk about the seven-year itch and, and often it is about that that space of time when you start to go, you know what, I'm not, things aren't really what I expected them. And we often go through, okay, well, things aren't going too well a couple of years in, so let's have a baby. Oh, things go great for a little while. Then they they hit, hit, 
bomb again. And then you go, oh, well, let's have another baby and see if that helps. Yeah. And, you know, and we're doing all these things without realizing what we're doing. Um, yeah. And because you're caught up in the moment, you, you're there and you're, yeah, you're letting it happen. Um, again, looking back, when we start to reflect back on our lives, you say, what the hell? What was I thinking? What was I doing? But you're surviving and you're surviving the best. Exactly. I had a business partner for many years who always would say, there you go, using the T word. And it's one of my favorite sayings because it's sort of like when we say, what was I thinking? And he'd always go, there you go, using the T word. Like thinking has nothing to do with it. And I yes. think, you know, you were talking about how the early part of your life, you just were going along to get along. You were moving with the flow. You were sort of not necessarily recognizing yourself or really spending time like just sort of dialing into like, who am I? What's making me tick? And so, of course, like, you know, and we're talking, I mean, you were saying you were in the marriage for 20 years. I imagine you've been out of the marriage for a while. So we're talking like what, like, you know, 30 years ago when you met him, 25 years ago when you met him or? Oh, longer. Um, It would have been, I've been away from him now more than I was with him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah. So then we're talking like, if we're talking like more than 40 years ago, when you first met him, it's not like anybody was looking at domestic violence back then in the same way they are now. There was not the same level of, of, of self-awareness or yeah. like red flags or warning signs or anything. And I'm imagining the social pressure to be married and have kids in Australia is comparable to what is here in the United yes. States. And you don't, you don't separate, you don't get divorces, you don't no. do this. Yeah. Yeah. You and and you, you so, so you were doing all the things. You were doing everything yeah. that was expected of you. Yeah. And as as I've gone along then, um, it got to the stage where I was in tears a lot, you know. Mm. I'd had I'd had three children in three years. Three I'm children still, in three years. Then I worked out what was causing it and I stopped. So I <laughs> I, <laughs> That's, I worked out what was causing it and I stopped. I'm like did you that that just like was there something like that was making you extra fertile or was it like that you were just like you guys weren't using birth control (laughs) like I was I was not very good at birth control I'm I'm not a good tablet taker so taking Uh the pill every day was not I'd get to the end of the month and think I've got three, I've got six pills left. What's going on? So I was I was hopeless at that. And and then I'm, you know, I put my hand up. But in the same token, he'd already had a family, but he wouldn't yeah. go and get himself sorted. So it was no, that's men don't do that. It's women have to do that. So, you know, and this was this was the mentality. So with my with my situation, I'll go back to that um abusive side to it. So um, I always sort of went, uh, why I thought I was going a little bit crazy was my ex never hit me. Basically, he did once, sorry, I should say. Once he did, he raised his hand at me. And I think that's all I needed, being being an empath as well. We don't, we don't need to be knocked around too much because we learn very quickly. So I learned very quickly not to push those buttons again. Yes. Now, he was distraught and was very, very apologetic for doing that and all the rest of it, but I'd lost that trust. The trust had gone. I could not trust him any longer for me to stand up and say what I wanted to say without the consequences of it. So that was my very first learning with that one. Yes. And again, for the rest of that marriage, he never raised a hand at me. 
but he didn't need to. I didn't give him cause to as well, if that makes sense. It totally sense. It's sort of Stockholm syndrome. You know, it's yeah. that idea of that, that there is that way in which we get, we get trained how to behave. And I mean, sometimes certainly there are, there are relations. And I just want to say this because I don't want to imply that our behavior necessarily has anything to do with why somebody is being abusive. Like Absolutely. there are people who will just beat the crap out of somebody simply because they're there and they're breathing. But obviously in this particular case, this was somebody who fortunately you could sense his, be you, you had that ability to sense things and for it to not have to go into the physical escalate into physical violence. Yeah. Yeah. But in the same token, Jen, that you, because you were, you, it had happened, I was on tender hooks a lot of the right. time, on eggshells, making sure it didn't happen because I basically blamed myself for it. Um, yes. So it's like, okay, I can't do that. I can't, I can't say how I'm feeling. I can't say I don't like how you do that. I can't really be me. Yeah. That's sort of where it happened. And so this is where this emotional abuse comes through. Now, one of the other aspects when I looked at all this is in in Australia, we have the three pillars of abuse. We have physical abuse, we have financial abuse, and we have psychological abuse. Now, all of them will create emotional aspects to them. Yes. But I always say there is the fourth pillar, which is emotional abuse. Yes. And it doesn't come under some of those. And one of the cases I, I've sort of spoken about was a situation in Melbourne where the gentleman had his three kids for the weekend custody and he drove that car, his car, into a, it was a dam or some sort of water course and drowned the three children. Now, that's not physical abuse. No. He did not hurt her. It's not um, financial abuse. There was no finances involved. Right. And there was not psychological abuse in the fact that he didn't use words to upset her. Yeah. It was total emotional manipulation, emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. He used that to get what he wanted out of her. Yes. And this was the sort of thing that, you know, there's areas where one of the other aspects of a narcissist is they'll take you away from your family. They'll take you away from your safety net. They become your safety net. Yes. And because I was living two states away, he would control my friends and he would control that safety. And that, to me, was emotional abuse. He would say things like, oh, you don't want to be friends with them. They're, they're this, they're that. And you sort of go, oh, don't I? You know, and you you double take on everything. Everything right. you did was, was questioned. If it wasn't questioned by them, it was questioned by yourself. Exactly. And, you know, the relationship to this way that of being constantly gaslit, of being constantly invalidated, of being like of having somebody just kind of always kind of nudging you to follow, like it, it just sort of like you're constantly being nudged onto their track instead of yeah. your own, you know, the relationship between that and intuition like, how do you even access your intuition where you've got somebody like you might be like, wow, that person seems like a wonderful person to to meet or to connect with. Yeah. I'd love to be friends with them. And then immediately you get that course correction or that sort of like, you know, knock upside the head um, sort of cosmic bitch slap of like, yeah, no, that's not OK. So yeah. I'm just really struck by how much being in a relationship 
with a narcissistic person being in a relationship with somebody who is emotionally abusive does and can really impact your sense of not just your intuition, but even the fundamentals of like, what do I even want? What do I desire? What makes me happy? What brings me joy? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, your sense of worth. Yeah, absolutely. So as I, I went along, I was I was in a, a tears a lot because, like I said, I've had three children in three years, and I was in tears a lot. And um, everybody in this small seaside community was sort of well, not everybody, but you know, people that I knew. Well, she's got postnatal depression. There's something wrong with her. She's got postnatal depression. So everyone was basically telling me this, you know, and I'm thinking, well. You know, I don't feel like I've got a problem, and I'm one of the first ones to go. If I've got a problem, I need to I need to look at that. You know, how do I do that? But I didn't feel like I had a problem, and yet I was in tears a lot. Hmm. So one particular morning, I was driven to into town, which was like an over an hour's drive, driven into town, and I was dropped outside the doctor's surgery, baby in arm, and said, well, and was told to get something now. As I said to you, I'm not good with tablets. I'm not good with that. And at that stage, um, Valium was the the drug of choice for for housewives, housewives at that particular time. And he just basically shoved me in and I thought, I haven't got a doctor's appointment. I've got nothing. And this is where synchronicity, intuition starts. Anyway, so I fronted up going, that's what I've got to do. I've, I've got to see the doctor. And and the lady behind the desk said, what for? And I went, well, I don't know. I've just been told I've got to see the doctor. <laughs> I really didn't know. I, I just could not make up. I couldn't understand it. So this particular day, we, they had a new doctor arrive in, in town. She was So she was new to the area. She practiced alternate therapies, which was fine, and she had a space. So I basically went into the doctor's and I'm in there and and blubbering. She's saying, what's wrong? I don't know. And I'm blubbering. I don't know what to do and rah, rah, rah. So she's asking me a series of questions. And as she's asking these questions, she's writing notes down. Anyway, at the end, she looked at me and I told her I, I didn't like taking tablets. And, you know, so she was actually listened. This doctor listened to me. And so in the end, she held up two pieces of paper. One was a prescription for Valium and one was a list of books. And she said, you have the choice. You have the power to choose what you want to do with this. And it was such a small choice to make, but it was my first one I could make. You know, I didn't didn't make the choices for the other things. This was one I could make. And You've got to remember, I had an alcoholic, abusive husband, three kids in three years, three babies under the age of four, basically, and I lived two states away from any family member. Yeah. So I grabbed what was easy for me. It had to be easy. Yeah. And I I grabbed the list of books. Which is so funny because so many people would do the exact opposite because they'd like, give me a pill. It's easier to take a pill than it is to do the work. And yet, because you are not inclined towards tablets, what an incredible blessing that you went for the books instead of the benzos. I mean, but it didn't go down too well when I went in back to the car and he said, what did you get? And I went, oh, list of books. Uh (laughs) Didn't go down very well at all. But I got my first book, and it was called um, Creative Visualization by Jacques Dequan. One of my, one of my, like one of the OGs, one of my yep. favorite, favorite yep. books from those. Yeah. What a yep. life-changing book it was for me. I it love that that was your first book. 
Yeah, so that good. was my, my very first. And the thing was that um, after I got that one, it was like, well, I can't afford to buy books all the time because yeah. I, I was we, I had no money. Um, in those days, the woman got no money. It all went to the husband and he divvied it out how he chose. Well, to. and as you said, financial abuse is one of the pillars of domestic violence of them, yeah. or of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was the other one. So it was like, okay, so how can I do this? And this is where my intuition starts. This is when, now, and I shouldn't say it starts to kick in. It's when I noticed it start to kick. And I, because because how I talk about intuition is you ask, you receive, and you action. Mm, and it, mm, it's as mm. simple as that. And so this is where I've gone, well, how can I get the books that I need? Nowadays we have podcasts. We have right. so much information on the internet. But in those days we had didn't have that. No, we had libraries with maybe yes. a stack of books on on metaphysics and um, self help and stuff. If we were lucky, that's exactly what I did. When I yeah. said, "Well, how can I do this?" Then the intuition kicked in and said, "What about the library? Go to the library. They're free." Yeah. And so every time I went into town, I would go in and I'd go to the library and I'd get ten books, always self help books, It'll always um, you know the, the spiritual books, always those. Never went into the general reading, always went into that side of it. And I would just allow that those words to hit me. That sounds good. I'll have that book. Those pictures, I like those colors, and I'd let my intuition pick and decide which ones I'd take home. Take them home. Sometimes they were good, sometimes they weren't, it didn't matter. I needed to read them and get an understanding. And that's how I started. So that's why anybody listening to this podcast, I take my hat off to you because that is the best way to get going. Books, reading, getting other people's understanding of it is how I started to really connect with who I was and, and where I was going. So where he was dumping me in front of the doctor's surgery to get something to to fix me, what he didn't realise, he did exactly that. The book fixed me, but not the way he wanted me to be fixed. Right. He was your agent of change. Like in some ways he really was, he was a divine messenger in this particular case. It just, it went against what his ego wanted, but it certainly, it certainly sounds like it was the big shift. So what was it that made you go, like to go from that glimmer of possibility to I'm done with this, this is it? Oh, it was a long time, just like yeah. yours, Jen. It was, a long, it was a long period of time. One of the things that I always said, as far as a marriage goes, I, I needed to, you, you, um, you need, you want, and you love um, in a marriage. And I had to really assess them. That was my, that was my ticking box, if that makes sense. And when I sort of looked at that, and I, I might have got that from a book, I don't know, but I remember thinking, well, I, I love him and I do need him and I, and I want him. So that was that was pretty cool. We eventually moved out to a 90, 90 acre organic crop farm. Like, yeah, I loved the farm. Mm-hmm. On there, I no longer wanted him. I noticed the want started to really dwindle, but I still needed him being on the farm and I still loved him. He's, he's yeah. the father of my children, so I still yeah. loved him. And we're talking then eight years later, type thing. We sold the farm and moved back into the into town. And that's when I went, I no longer need him. We're in this little I no longer need him. So I've lost the want and I've lost the need. Do I still love him? And that's sort of, you know, straight away I went, Oh yeah, yeah, I do. And then I, you know, a year later I asked the same question. And it was like, 
well, hang on. If he stopped drinking, which is what I kept on thinking what the problem was, if he stopped drinking and I've only known him to be like that all his life or all, all our lives together, would I still love him? Is that what I want? And that's when I went, no, no. Mm. I loved him for how he was. If he changed, I don't know whether I could guarantee that, and I don't love how he is now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he always said to me, well, it's your fault, you changed. And I went, yes, it is my fault. Yes, I did change. I don't believe that after being together for 20 years, you would be the same person. No kidding. Yeah. I, I, to me, after 20 years, if I hadn't changed, there would be something wrong with me. Right, right. Well, and he changed too. He just doubled down. It sounds like he changed, but he was just kind of disintegrating into the into the alcoholism. And, you know, I don't imagine he was as bad at the beginning of the relationship as towards the end of the relationship. Yeah. And and look, to be honest, I don't know whether he was bad or, or not so bad. The fact was I had changed. Yeah. And I had grown and I had developed and I had moved on. He decided not to. He wanted to stay where he was and that was fine. And when he said, you've changed, I went, yes, I have. Yeah. Put your hand up to it. Yes, I have. And you know what? I am so bloody proud of myself that I have. And when I am getting rid of the stuff and the crap and the things that are around me that do not suit me any longer, I am more than proud to. I love the fact, one of the things that I want to hold out in this is acknowledging the fact that it took time, that this was an incremental transition that, you know, I think so often when we're looking at abusive relationships and we're looking at marriages and domestic violence, there's this idea that I think a lot of people have where it's some like, once you know you're in this abusive relationship, you're just supposed to exit it. And yet it's, there's what I've seen over and over again for so many of us is that when it comes to a relationship, we have to do the things we need to do in order to be ready to walk away. And that there is a lot of, it is an incremental process, that it is a growth process that happens. So, you know, as you were saying, it's like, it starts with, you know, you have these, you're young and married with three, basically infant to toddler, and you find these books. And then you spend eight years engaging with these books and learning more about yourself and living on the organic, you know, on the organic farm for a while and realizing, wait a second, I don't want him anymore. Like I have other things that are fulfilling me and satisfying to me. And then you leave there and come back into the city or back into the, the town or city. And you're like, I don't need him anymore. But it's it's not like this is a you know, one day just sort of the light dawns and everything is new and you're just like, I'm going to pivot. It was a gradual, like, it's more like the way dawn light really does dawn is like, it's not just like you go from night to day, you go through this process of, of the transition of the light coming in. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, when you see people repeating the same patterns, that is because they haven't done the work to be able to move on. They've just, as you've said, they've just gone, oh, I don't like this. I'm out of here. Yeah. And they've not actually had the understanding and the learnings and the the way to move forward. You want to be able to move forward so you don't have to experience that again. You want to learn from that so you can move forward in a more positive and and a better way. And it was amazing. Once the marriage finished, I had like 
I think, 10 years on my own. And I loved it. I loved it. Look, there was times when I got sad and there was times when I got a bit lonely and there was times when I needed to have a booty call, which we arranged that as well. But the reality is that I enjoyed my own company. I learned to enjoy who I was. I learned to understand who I was. I learned to get that back again. I remember after the, the marriage breakdown, my girlfriend came around and she said to me, um, Sue, let's go, let's go shopping. Let's go and buy you some clothes because you always wear crappy, shitty stuff because um, you've been told to. Let's go and buy some clothes. I'm in the clothes shop with her and she said to me, what do you like? And I said, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I've only been able to buy what I can or pick up what I can. Yes. yes. I don't know what I like. And, and the other aspect was once the marriage broke down was the decision making. You know, we talked about that earlier on. I went through a stage because I had made the decision to buy him out of the house, home. Mm-hmm. So I bought him out. I had to make the decision to to clean his stuff out. He refused to do anything. I had to move everything. I had to go through all of our stuff mm-hmm. and emotionally detach myself from it. And it was it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. But I recommend anyone do it because it is the best way to get through that grief and get through that understanding. And it's grieving the loss of a future is what we grieve, not the loss of a partner, the loss of a future. Yes, you just said it like mic drop here because I have witnessed that I have a dear friend who was in a marriage that was a good marriage. I mean, there were challenges with it, but, and a number of different reasons for this, but eventually the spat, the husband got to a place where he was done. And what I saw for this friend of mine was that it was not the past that she was grieving. It was all of the promises of what she imagined her life was going to be like that suddenly the world, it was no longer going to be this way. And I think that, I think that that's actually, it's funny because I'm thinking about even some work I was doing earlier with another client about the, like, so often it's the fantasy of what we thought we would be living that we grieve for, as opposed to necessarily even something that actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's and that's what I was grieving. I was grieving the loss of, of a future that I perceived to be. Um, but I remember I, I would go to the shops to do my grocery shopping and I could not make a decision, could not think of what I wanted for dinner. For I reckon for four weeks, almost a full month, I had jam sandwiches for dinner because I could not get my head around it. Um, and when we, we're going through these processes, you've got to be gentle with yourself. You've got to be kind with yourself. Allow that to happen. It's not hurting me to have a month of jam sandwiches. It really is not hurting me. No. If it's making my head and my emotions calm down and, and allow me to get through it, um, then so be it. And, and it got to the stage where I went, oh, okay, I might have a stir fry. And all of a sudden, things started to move and started to change and I could then go shopping and I could see the week in front of me and I could pick out what I needed. But, yeah, for a long time there I could not make a decision. I had to make so many in such a short period of time from doing none, not even being able to pick clothes, to having to do everything when I purchased the house from him. Yeah, it was it was huge. It was so overwhelming. And that's, that's sort of how I coped and that's when I started to, again, Go back into your intuition. What does it feel like? 
What do I need to do? How can I get through this? And it was like, just eat jam sandwiches. Who gives a shit? Just eat right, it. Right, right. When you're ready to make that decision, when you're ready to go, then we'll, do, then we'll go again. And I was like, oh, okay, jam sandwiches. <laughs> well, and it strikes me that when we are getting out of a really challenging situation, there is a certain amount of decompression that needs to happen. And it's like your brain, you had been sort of, I don't know, like just kind of like the blinders on going along, going with the flow. And it's almost like a month for your frontal cortex to come online and to just start saying, hey, I'd like something other than jam and bread. Yeah, that may I mean, of course, you just needed to decompress for a while. And thank goodness for jam sandwiches that you could just eat jam sandwiches. And it wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. Then I went so, to stir fries and I ate a lot of stir fries and then yeah. I started to ease it off. But that was that was just how I coped with it. That's how that's how I did it. Yeah. Uh, then there was a stage there. I had I had the three children when I was still living at the um at the the seaside village thing. I had done so much community work there. I was nominated for uh, an award, which they call Australian Citizen of the Year, and it is a huge big award. And it was like, because there was no internet, I didn't know what the award was. It didn't mean a lot to me. And my ex just sort of went, oh, it's just it's just crap. It's just somebody trying to raise more money and trying to get money out of you. And I ignored it. Now, there's very, very few people that get, you know, nominated for that sort of a, an acclaim. And, and it wasn't until 20 years later that I went, holy shit, that's what I was nominated for. I did not know that. Yeah. And when I went to go to uh, to accept my nomination, they had this big dinner. And I, again, we di- I didn't get the money in those days, so there was no money there. And um, I said to I said to my husband, you know, do you want to come to the dinner? They'd like, I can c- collect my award. And that's when he just hoo-hard it and said it was a whole lot of rubbish. I'm not going. That's just fundraising. And I went, oh, okay. And I said, okay, well, if I get the kids, the kids babysat, will you will you babysit the kids so I can go? No, you get somebody else to babysit. Well, everybody was going to this event. I couldn't find a babysitter without having to pay one. And I didn't have the money to pay one. Mm-hmm. And then when I looked in my car the day before we were due to go, I had no petrol. I had no money to get petrol to go. In you know, there was everything became so hard. Yeah. And even like I was talking about in my childhood, when things got hard, it was easy to go with the flow. So I went with the flow and pretended that this big event, this big nomination was just nothing. Yeah. And this is how we lose ourselves. We aren't even aware we've lost. We're lost. Right. We're not even aware we've lost ourselves until years later. Mm. Yeah. Another way that I did find myself is, and I was talking about the books, and I hope people do this with podcasts as well. I'm a theory tester, Jen. Mm-hmm. I, I test. So those books, like Jacques de Quan, I mm-hmm. tested those as I went along. And if the test didn't work out, which majority of times it did, but if the test didn't work out, I wouldn't follow through with them. There was right. one called The Dance with Anger. I tested that one. That was brilliant. Taught me so much. Melody Beattie, right? Oh, I can't remember the author's name. You look it up. I'll keep going. Jacques yeah. de Quan, I tested that. Um, I tested that on the farmhouse, $85,000, six months it took me, $85,000 later, exactly how I picked Harriet Lerner. That's it, Harriet, Harriet Lerner. Harriet Lerner, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yep. Anger. Brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant. If, if you've got a, a manipulating person that you're living with, and remember, emotional abuse can be very, very strong with women because they're good at doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's not just men that do it. Um, so if you're in this uh, emotionally 
abusive relationship, what happens is that they'll say something to you and you'll respond back and then they they dance you, they take you to where they know that they can press buttons. So when he would come home late from the pub, he'd say, I'd say, oh, your, dinner, your dinner's there. Oh, I'm not going to have dinner. And then he would change it and then he would say, yes, but you're not a good mother. Or yes, you don't know how to look after children and you can't even keep the house clean. And he would change it until he found a button to press and I would just, you know, get shitty, get teary, whatever, storm off type thing. I learned to not do that. And that was that what this book did, this Dance With Anger book. So he came home one day and he said, look at the dust on the microwave. Okay, right, there's dust on the microwave. So I went and cleaned the dust off and he kept on going on about the dust on the microwave. Well, there's no dust there. What are we arguing about? Oh, well, because you're not a good, you can't keep the house clean. I went, no, no, you're not, we're not talking about the house clean. We're talking about the dust on the microwave. You came in, you were upset about the dust on the microwave. I've cleaned the dust off on the microwave. And every time he tried to dance me to another spot, I would bring it back to the microwave and he hated it. But that's what it was about. And that, and this is how I could keep control without him losing it. And it was like I said, you were angry. You come in, you're angry about dust on the microwave. There's no longer dust on the microwave. You've got to stop being angry now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it, I, don't, I don't know whether I played his game back to him, but I stopped him dancing. I stopped allowing him to take me where he wanted to go. And I kept on bringing it back to what the problem was as he walked in the door, dust on the microwave. It was dust on the microwave, dust on the microwave. And he had nowhere to go. He couldn't. I stopped dancing. Yeah. Well, and you stopped being in the defensive mode. You stopped being in the reactive mode. And instead, we're like, okay, yeah, here it is. What a miraculous transformation and what an incredible story. I really cannot believe how fast the time is going. And I am, and I really want to talk about intuition. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about intuition with you before we like come to the top of the hour and everything, because so much of what we're talking about and the importance of stepping away from this before we talk, move to intuition. Is there anything else that feels like really important to be talking about this, the relationship or the the lessons that you've learned from being in the relationship? The, the lessons I learned from being, and, and I will bring it back to intuition because the yeah. lessons I did learn was learning to listen to me, learning to trust yeah. me, le- learning to take on those little messages. And it could be as simple as they've said something and I feel hurt. I can I can acknowledge that, it that hurt. And I don't have to say that hurt. I just need to acknowledge it in myself to say, okay, that didn't feel right. There's something happening there. What? Why do I feel that way? And you're starting to acknowledge how you're feeling. And that is where your intuition is coming through. Intuition, and, and I'll, I'll just go into this too very quickly, Jen. I see intuition as um, the communication between our spiritual side, our soul, that spirit side of us, and our physical side, because the spirit mm-hmm. side of us doesn't have access to the five senses of the five physical senses. Spirit doesn't touch and it doesn't taste. So it comes into the body to experience those. And and I 
this a couple of big my ahas that happened before I left home. Um, I could explain those, but we, we're running out a little bit of time here. So how I saw that is because of the times that I had left my body and I was aware that leaving your body, you lose that emotional attachment to the physical side of it. And that's when I went, well, hang on. If spirit doesn't have the ability to touch and taste and, and hear and things like that, how does it communicate with a body that can? Mm. How does it communicate? And that's where the intuitive message, and that's what my passion is about, is listening to those intuitive messages and how we receive them. Well, and what I'm really hearing in this, and I think this is something so incredibly important, is you first have to know whether you want a jam sandwich or not before you can access the like the deeper layers of intuition. And one of the things that I've been noticing is like the first step to accessing our intuition is even just acknowledging our bodies. Like, are we constantly ignoring that we have to use the bathroom? Like, are we constantly holding our bladder and waiting a few more minutes? Are we constantly like um, ignoring that we are hungry, that we are thirsty, that we are cold or that we are hot? And how do you access the intuition if you don't know what you want to eat? How do you access the intuition if you don't know what you want to wear? How do you access the intuition if you're just constantly trying to tell yourself, like ignore that you're tired, that ignore that you need to use the bathroom? And I love how like we're talking about, it's almost like the precursor to intuition is just even being in touch with what what's my desire, like what's going on in here, what really matters. And a lot of people will say, well, well, what do you like? And when I'm trying to look at clothes, well, what do you like? I don't know what I like. Yeah. And then, even that is the first step of saying, well, hang on, you don't know what you like. That There's something wrong with that. That's, you, you should know a few things of what you like. You should know that how nice it feels to lay in the sun on, on a cooler day and how the sun can warm you up. You know, you, you should know what you like. And so that was one of my aha moments where I went, I need to know more about me. What do yes. I like? And what do I like? And does that make any difference to anyone else's expectation? Um, I can see on your tattoos. Tattoos yeah. was one of those things growing up, you know. Well, you don't get a tattoo. You're right. like this and you've got a tattoo. You know, and then if somebody said to you, okay, if you had a choice to get a tattoo, what would you like to have on you? Right. And it's right. like, oh, my God, I don't know. Yeah, And yeah. this is part of then going, okay, if we want to tap into our intuition, you've, like you said, you've just made an awareness to that you don't know and you're now making an awareness to say, I do want to know. And you open yourself up and then you go, all right, I'm asking, if I want a tattoo, what would be a good one for me? Yeah. Now, you may not get the answer straight away. You may get it when you're in the shower because yeah. often we get it when we're near water. Um, you may get it a couple of days later. You may be scrolling through Facebook and all of a sudden a picture pops up. You go, oh, I really like that. That's connected. Right. And then right. you go, right. why do I really like that? Oh, right. One that is a tattoo. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you know this, but I was a tattooer. I actually did it professionally. I tattooed other people for over 20 years. And and so I spent a lot of time talking with people about what did they want and helping them to find it. And what I discovered also was that very often people got caught up in the details, thinking that they needed to be thinking about the visual image when the essence of the energy of the tattoo was really what it was about. 
And once they could articulate what they desired, like what the essence of it was, then the image would sort of fall into place. Whereas when people often would, you know, what image do I want? It was almost like, it's not about the image. It's about the energy. It's about the feeling. It's about the the intention behind it. And then yeah. the, the image kind of evolves from that. And so that's the other thing is that I find so often people, and I think this is a metaphor for life, we sometimes will get very, very externally, like the physical detail, thinking that that's what we're trying to figure out when the truth is, it's really more about the intention and the quality and the frequency and the essence of something, as opposed to even the image of or the the physicality of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the other the other aspect I look at when I'm doing um, intuition as well is like I call myself an intuitist. So the mentalist deals with thinking and thoughts and intuitist deals with feelings and impressions. And that's exactly what you're talking about with a tattoo. It's the feeling that it's giving the impressions that it's giving that you want the world to see that yes. you want the world to know about and yes. and yeah I mean I, I don't know I've just pulled out tattoos from there but it's anything in life your clothes what you're wearing where you go on holidays who you're hanging around with what you're looking at at Facebook what you're liking in your socials all of that is about the feelings and the impressions and being mindful you know really being mindful of the feelings and impressions and and in many ways choosing I think then making the deliberate choice of like, this feels good, this feels bad. I have a mentor, um, Joanna Hunter, who's this amazing um, spiritual spiritual teacher and coach out of Scotland. And Joanna talks about finding what you want that like as adults, we get so invested in the idea of trying to figure it out that we often won't take risks. And she's like, be like a toddler. Like a little kid mm-hmm. is just gonna grab a box of chocolate and pick up the, pick the chocolate out of the box and be like, I want this. They taste it. And if they don't love it, the next thing they're doing is looking for the nearest pillow to scrape their tongue with it because it just isn't what they want. And, you know, but there isn't an investment in it. It's sort of like, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to see if it works. Nope. Don't like it. Scrape my tongue next, next, you know, or the half bitten chocolate where the toddler throws the half eaten chocolate back (laughs) into the box. But it's, it's, I think as adults, so often we have these expectations of like, I have to figure out whether I'm going to like it before I even try it. And it's like, no, try it. See if you like it. Like you were saying with the books where you were like, you had to experiment with it. You had to try it. You had to see, did this land? Yes, it lands. Then you're going to keep going. No, it doesn't land. Next, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not right for me. Right. You know, right. And, that, and same with anything we do. It doesn't mean that, that it's wrong. It just means it may not be right for you. And that's why we have all these modalities. That's why we have all these things that we can we can do. That's why when you're going through with a coach or a life coach or whatever you're doing there, if that person, that person may resonate with you for a little while, then all of a sudden it doesn't resonate with you. And that's fine because you've learned and you can go ahead. It doesn't mean that person's wrong. It just means that you've changed. The energy's changed. Well, and you've probably grown in opposite directions because as you were saying, you know, the thing is we're always evolving and growing 
even your husband was evolving and growing. I mean, he was, or growing, maybe not evolving, but growing, you know, but the thing is, even with coaches, I've absolutely had the experience where I've witnessed both from both sides of it, being in the the provider side of it, and also in the receiver side of it, where it's like, we have a contract, we have work to do. And then there's a point where we grow in different directions and that's okay. And, Mm. you know, it just is so okay to grow in different directions. Absolutely. But I I do have to just say this too, uh, probably about, I don't know, five or six years after the marriage split up, my um, ex sent me a book saying, oh, I've just read this book. And he goes, I just thought you would really like it. And it it was the the Qigong. Mm. Qigong or No, the I Ching. Mm -hmm. And he had read it. So Yes, he was trying to trying. evolve. Yes, yeah. And he was doing it in his own time. So I, I take my hat off. Well, and and I will just say that alcoholism is a brutal teacher, but it is a teacher. And a lot of times, I mean, some of my favorite people on the planet are recovering alcoholics because it is a hard teacher. But when we finally accept the lesson of it, miracles happen. So my unless he's assuming he's still he's still earthside. My I I hold out prayers for his continued evolution and growth. Yeah. So we really are getting to that place where where we are we are really at the top of the hour. And there's a few things I want to do want to ask you. Is there anything else that you are just like I will kick myself if I don't share this? Oh, the, uh, look! I'll just really quickly say um, the intuitive flowers because we did mention it. The yeah. intuitive flowers is a tool that I created. And it's a tool wholly and solely so you can see your intuitive messages. That's all. Um, nice. It's just another tool you can use to see your intuitive messages. And that's what I use it for. And that's why I love it. Wonderful. And the next question I'm going to ask, which if any of my listeners know, we always do this. This is, I believe that podcasts have a way of moving through time. And I believe that while these podcasts exist for, you know, in perpetuity, like these podcasts will be broadcasting and people will be listening to them years, years and years from now. But I also believe there's a way that those messages kind of have a way of rippling back in time too. And so I love to sending a a message back. So if you could imagine that we are, we are sort of folding the fabric of time over on itself and this, and we are connecting to a time where you needed a message for two things. When are we connecting to what, who are we connecting to? What age, you know, who are you then? And what does she need to hear? Um, I would be connecting back to when I was a teenager and I, my message to her would be this too shall pass. Mm. And it was something that I learned later on in life. Um, we get caught up in the, the emotion and everything that's going on that we feel that there's, there's no uh, way out um, and we, we get very, very stagnant, very, very boxed in and we feel like we're stuck there. I just want to let her know that this too shall pass. You'll get through this. You'll get through this. Just allow it to go. This too shall pass. You'll get through this. What a wonderful message. And so the final question that I have for you, Susan, is how can people get in touch? On my website, intuitivenature.com.au. It's an Australian business. We have to have the AU at the end. Yeah. Um, They can connect me through that way. I have a 
podcast as well called The Voice of Intuition. Yes, you do, which is yeah. how you and I connected in the first place. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Lovely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. And you also book. have a really active TikTok page or TikTok profile where you talk about flowers like every I'm seeing posts from you nearly every single day. Um, every where you're day also, you will yeah. get a daily reading, um, yes. a daily flower reading. Yes. Yes. Every day yes. on TikTok. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and your handle your handle on a TikTok is at intuitive nature. Yes, your intuitive nature. I'm sure it's intuitive nature. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pull you up on TikTok just to be sure. Oh, uh, you know, when you're you're adding it to different social medias and sometimes you can't get exactly what you want. Oh, I know. Yes. I was yes. really lucky in pretty much everything or almost everything I've got on social is all at empathic mastery. But yes. um yeah, it's it is a it is a process for sure. Yeah. yeah. I had some that had to be, I think um Twitter is your intuitive nature. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Um, and then it, some of them are under Susan Janney Intuitive. So, yeah. yeah so you are on TikTok. You are intuitive nature. So just beautiful. pure intuitive nature. Yeah. And today, Ooh. at least what I'm seeing is a viola. It looks like is the flower, which is just. Yes. So you, yes. You'll get one every day. Um, and you get a little, a little, just a daily reading just to sort of go, oh, wow, this is what the flowers are about. But yeah, yeah like I said, the flowers show you those different things, show you those messages. They really do. I will. And I was showing you all of the flowers I have surrounding me right now because I had just today's been a very big flower day. Susan, this conversation has just been so rich, so powerful, and so important. And I hope for any any person who is listening to this and doesn't know who they are, is maybe doubting themselves, or is really just still stuck in a partner, in a relationship, or a situation where they're just having to go along with it, I really hope that that this has given them a sense of hope and a sense of inspiration about what is possible. And I guess I'll ask you actually one last question, which is if you had any advice for people who are at the place that you were like maybe 30 years ago, like, you know, where you were just starting to be like, uh, this is not really working for me anymore. What advice would you give to somebody who's realizing that it's not working? What would you suggest? I would suggest, and mainly because of the way the world is today, I would suggest that you start to follow different people. Please, please, please do not stick with one person. Um, Enjoy, get what you need out of that person. I remember with the books, there was things in the books that I'd go, nah, don't listen, I don't like that. Um, and then there was other parts that I would take on and it would be I would be able to change and I would test them, make sure they resonated with me and moved forward. I would ask everyone to do that. This is how you are trusting your intuition is by understanding it, that if that resonates with me, I'm going to follow that a little bit longer and see where that goes. If what the, the person down the road resonates with me, I'll follow that and see how that goes. But if that person next door says, you know, you should be doing this and that doesn't resonate with me, let it go. Mm -hmm. Don't follow things that are not resonating with you. Be open. Uh, Don't follow. Let me just repeat that. Don't follow things that are not resonating with you. Yes. Just pure wisdom there. And sadly, I mean, it's sort of like a no, like, of course, but we live in a culture that so often we are so pressured to go along and to try to like make ourselves like things because other people do. 
don't follow things that don't resonate with you. Susan, Especially thank with you. the social media because yeah. it's like, oh, I want to be like them. Well, hang on. Do they do really? With you? Yeah. Right. Does it resonate? And that really is the first, it's like resonance is the first step to intuition. Susan, thank you so much for being here today. This conversation has just been so rich. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Thank you so much. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.